Good morning, church. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. If you've got a favorite bookmark, you'll want to just leave it there because we're going to be studying this passage for the next several weeks. John, chapter 15, verse 1. If Jesus drew a picture of a disciple, if Jesus drew a picture of a disciple, this passage is one of those that, for me as a believer, uh, almost 40 years now, I have turned to again and again, wanting to understand as much as I could about this passage. Some couple years ago, we looked at another passage like that in Matthew 11, the last few verses, where Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because he says something there that's very, very much another way of describing what he's sharing here. What does it mean to be a disciple? And how is this life that he has called us to, how is it to be lived out? John chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Father, we are grateful for your word. And we know that it is truth that you inspired John to set down uniquely capturing words that no one else captured that night, putting them down on, in such a way that we would be able to look at them today. And so we know they're important words. And because you inspired them, you know what they mean and what they need to mean to us as your followers. So, Father, we pray that you would open up the Scripture. Would you cause the truth to burn in our hearts, cause it to come alive, enable us to break free from the chains of tradition, the chains of assumptions, the chains of the past, Enable us to embrace everything that you have for us in this moment. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a question that I ask periodically with our staff and that I've talked about and asked myself for a lot of years. And it's the question, and maybe, maybe you've already done this, have you ever wondered what Jesus really had in mind when he said, follow me. Now, different people have 
interpreted that through the centuries in different ways. For some people, it meant a life of sacrifice, giving up everything, uh, living in the most miserable way you possibly can, and then that way you were fulfilling his call to follow me. What, what did he have in mind when he says to you, and he says to me, follow me? Well, that is the essence of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as we go through some of the, the very last things he said to us, the last commands, the, what we call the Great Commission, which is really multiple statements through the Gospels, this is what we read. Here's the first one, Matthew 28, 19. Make disciples of all the nations. Now that comes right out of what we call the Great Commissions. Go and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. What, what we sometimes forget is that there's really only one command, and he gives us three activities that go with that command. Make disciples, how do you do it? Going, baptizing, teaching. But the heart of it is to make disciples. That's Matthew. In Mark's gospel, he says something very similar. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We've talked about that one before because it's one of my personal favorites. St. Francis of Assisi took that literally. He went and preached to the squirrels and the bunnies and the birds, every creature. But I believe that it meant every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl on the planet. And that certainly applies to every man, every boy, every, every woman, every girl in Wynn, Arkansas. They all need to hear the gospel. In Luke's gospel, this is what he says. He says and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached or proclaimed in his name to all nations. A message of turning to God that your sins can be forgiven. Jesus said do that. And it wasn't to the professionals. It was to his followers. Then we come to John chapter 20 verse 21. He says, as a father has sent me, I also send you. If you want to understand what Jesus meant when he said, I also send you, you got to go to the first part. How did the father send him? What was involved when the father sent him? Meditate on that. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we move out of the gospels. And we read, you shall be witnesses to me, not for me, to me, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so, not just the furthest place you can think of, but across the street as well. Witnesses to what? To me, he says. The bottom line is that every Christian in the church is called to be a disciple, actively making other disciples. We are called to be a disciple. And in that process of being a disciple, what is our primary occupation? To make other disciples. To help other people know Christ and to follow him. Now when we talk about discipleship in a church setting, there are three big questions that we have to answer. I brought this up to the staff from the first day I came here. And it's one that I've always asked whenever I've done consultations with churches and they're looking at why are we stuck? Why are we stuck? Why can't we go forward? And here are the three big questions. If you can't answer these questions, you can't go forward as a church. Number one, what is a disciple? 
Now, we think we know the answer to that, but what is one? If we can't answer with the same voice, we're not going to do very well at making them. What is a disciple? The next question is, how do we make them? He says, go and make disciples. How? How do we do that? Do we do that by gathering in a room and listening to a preacher? Do we do that in Bible study groups on Sunday morning? Do we do that one-on-one? How do we make disciples? And the third question is, how do we know when we've made a disciple? In other words, he says, make disciples. That means there's a starting point, and at some point we can stop and say, now he is a disciple. Now she is a disciple. So what is one? How do we make one? And how do we know when we've made one? Real practical questions. And every church I know that is growing significantly and over a sustained period of time can answer those three questions, and most of their leaders can too. What my desire is, is over the next few weeks as we study this passage together, is that we would come up with some answers to those questions. John chapter 15. Where to begin? Well, we know that Jesus is the master disciple maker. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? I think so. Jesus is the master discipler, and so we need to go to him to learn about discipleship. And in John chapter 15, Jesus does something really interesting. He draws, for you and me, he draws a picture, a very powerful word picture of what it means to be a disciple. He wants to explain to you and me the life of a Christ follower, of a disciple. Now, why does he do this in this passage? Well, this chapter is one of several chapters where Jesus is giving his final words and his commands and directions to his followers. He's about to die. This is the night before he's going to, um, to the Passover meal. He's going to be crucified the next day. And so this is really important. Now, now, why does he do it now? Well, if you go back and you read the previous chapter, and you don't need to do that right now, John chapter 14, one of the things he does is he says, look, and, it's, and this is used at funerals all the time. He says, um, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And, and we read those, that passage at funerals. Well, he was sharing that with disciples. He's saying, guys, I'm about to go. I am physically not going to be here with you anymore. But he says, look, I don't want you to worry about it. I don't want you to be troubled by that. Because let me tell you what's going to happen. The Father, I'm going to ask him, And when I lay the Father, it's going to send to you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to be for you everything that I have been for you, plus. And and more specifically, he tells them four things about the Holy Spirit in this passage. And just, just listen to this. He says, He will abide with you forever. I've come and I'm leaving. The Holy Spirit never leaves. He is truly your forever friend. He says that in verse 16. He says he will dwell in you. He's been with you, but now he's going to dwell in you. See, that's something that Jesus couldn't do when he walked the earth physically. If he was off fishing with Peter, he couldn't be with the other guys. If he was physically in one place, he couldn't be in the other place. But he says this is all different now. When the Holy Spirit comes, he has been with you, but now he's going to be in you. And the third thing he says is he's going to teach you all things. 
You know, we run everywhere we want to go to try to figure out what is the truth about this or that instead of taking our Bible. He says the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. When you don't understand, ask him. He's going to teach you all things. And then he says he will bring his words, Jesus' words, to your mind when you need them. I mean, he goes so far in other parts of the scripture, he says, when they arrest you, when you get into a place where you've got to speak for me, he says, don't, don't premeditate what you're going to say. Don't worry about it. He says, when you go into that situation, what you need will be given to you in that hour. I'm going to provide it for you. How does he do that? Through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was coming, and he told them some basic information about the Holy Spirit. But clearly, and he must have been looking at their faces, the disciples needed more than that. They needed more explanation. This is a new kind of life, Jesus. How is this going to work? What does it look like to follow you when I can't see you? What does it mean to follow you when I can't hear your voice with my ears physically? How does this work? And almost immediately, Jesus begins telling them, painting this picture of what the life of a disciple is really like in John 15. And so that's what I want us to see. Jesus wants you to know what a real disciple looks like, not just then, but today. How is this Christian life supposed to be lived? Well, first of all, he said a real disciple, he says, number one, is, is like a branch united to a vine. A branch united to a vine. In verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, he's referring to grapevines. Vineyards were everywhere Jesus and his disciples went. Some scholars speculate, and I don't think this is much of a stretch, that, that when he was telling them this word picture, he might have reached over. They may have been walking on a road. He might have reached over and picked up a vine. He said, look, I'm the vine. He said, you're the branches. They knew as much about vines and vineyards as people from wind know about corn and rice and beans and cotton. They immediately knew what Jesus was describing. They knew the picture. In the Old Testament, the vine is used to describe the people of God. He, he took his people out of Egypt, and like a tender vine, he plants them in a promised land. And, and the vine imagery is used to describe the people of God, typically in a negative way because they're not bearing fruit. They're not, they're not showing life. They're not responding to him as the one who cares for them. But when Jesus comes to the New Testament, he changes everything. He says, no, I'm the vine. We're going to do this differently now. He says, I'm the vine. And, um, and so, as he uses that picture, he's saying something to you and me as disciples. He's saying, you are united like a branch to the vine. Now, immediately that tells me some things. And, and I've got to wonder, is this consistent throughout the Scripture? Is this a consistent teaching of Scripture that, that I am united with him, that I am one with him when I trust Jesus? I'm no longer separated. I am I'm united with him. Uh, Paul actually says that anyone who's come to Christ, he said they're one spirit with him. What that means is I begin to realize that salvation, going to heaven, getting saved, being forgiven, 
is not a transaction between me and God where, where I come and I just, he says, if you believe me, I'll save you. And so I put my trust in him out there and then out there he gives me salvation here. No, it's very different. What Jesus is saying to us is, is that those things are true. We get forgiveness. We are saved when we trust him. But how does he give you that salvation? And what we realize and what Jesus is driving home here is that God only saves us through a real union with himself. Paul uses a single phrase to describe this reality in all the letters that he writes. Over 160 times, he uses two simple words in the Greek language. In English, they are in Christ. That's how he describes you and me. In Christ. It shows up everywhere. If you realize that, you begin reading Paul, you're going to see it everywhere. In the opening to the letter to the Philippians, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. You see, there are no saints out of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. For Paul, being in Christ meant everything had changed. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that word for creation, if you think about the creation event in Genesis, when God created the world, he created something from nothing. When he says it's a new creation, there was creation in Genesis where everything was created and made and and generation after generation, animals had begot animals and people begot people. Nothing new has happened since Genesis until people came up to, to belong in Christ. And he said when they were in Christ, they became a new kind of creature on the planet. One that didn't exist before. A new creation. That's what he's saying. You are now in Christ. You are one with him. One spirit with him. And you are fundamentally and organically different from every other species of animal on the planet. Even other human beings. Because you're in Christ. Paul uses the phrase in Christ in Ephesians. In chapter 1, which is the longest Greek sentence in the Bible, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, he uses in Christ 11 times. 11 times. You think he's making a point? In the very first part of that passage, in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. How many? Every single one of them. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, where? In Christ. That means that every blessing God has to give you, he's already given you in Jesus. Every single blessing. You need forgiveness? Ephesians 4.32, he says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You see, out of Christ, there's no forgiveness. If you're united with Christ, in Christ, you are forgiven. He doesn't do it separate from Jesus, separate from union, separate from being connected to him. Let's talk about righteousness. We know that our righteousness is inadequate to please God. That our righteousness, the Old Testament says, is as filthy rags. There's a proverb that says the plowing of the wicked is sin. The plowing of somebody else may be righteous, but just the plowing of the wicked is sin. Everything they do is wrong. And so I desperately need to be right with God. How am I going to be made righteous before God? 
How am I going to be right with him who is absolutely pure and cannot fellowship with you unless you are absolutely pure as well? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he gives you the answer. He says, for he made him who knew no sin to be for us. That's what he did to Jesus. He made him sin, even though he wasn't a sinner, he made him sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God, how? In him. In him. And so there is nothing God does apart from your union with Christ. There is no blessing he gives apart from that union with Christ. Where did Paul get this concept of being in Christ? He got it from Jesus. In John 15, he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. He's telling us something extremely important about our salvation, about our relationship with him. There's no aspect or detail or benefit of salvation that does not come through personal contact with him. And when I'm separated from him, I'm not going to experience those blessings. For example, if I'm dealing with sin, and I've got a besetting sin, a recurring sin in my life. And um, I have tried. And I have tried. And I have tried to stop, to quit. I have strained. I have exerted myself. I have read all the books. I have done everything that I possibly could to deal with this thing. And I have failed. And I turn to God and I say, dear God, why won't you give me the power to defeat this sin in my life? Now, if he were in the mood, and if he chose to do it, he would say to you, he said, because I don't give power as a package deal. He says, let me tell you what I've done. I've taken my son, his life, I put him in you. And what I've done is given you a person who has the power to defeat the sin in your life. You cannot overcome sin apart from your personal contact with Jesus. That's true of every aspect of your life. So a real disciple looks like a branch united to a vine. I am one with Christ. Every person here who's trusted Jesus for their salvation, you received that salvation. You were made right with God. You were forgiven. You were called. Every spiritual blessing you have received, you have received in Jesus Christ. And he lives in you. And so that real disciple is like a branch united to a vine. But Jesus is also teaching us here, secondly, that a disciple is a branch drawing life from the vine. I'm not only united with the vine, but I'm, I'm drawing something from this vine. I'm drawing life from this vine. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Jesus wanted you and me, he wanted his followers to know that this new life cannot be lived apart from him. It's impossible. That desire to live independently of God stretches all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God said, I made you and I've given you a garden and here's your task. Here's what I want you to do. He says this to Adam. He says, I've got one commandment for you. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. If you eat of that tree, in the day, in the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. 
What did Adam do? Well, he didn't depend on God, did he? He chose to live independently of God. And when he chose to live independently of God, which, by the way, is the essence of all sin, when he chose to live independently of God, he took of that apple, he ate of it, that fruit. We don't know that it was an apple. He ate of that fruit, and, and he died hundreds of years later physically. But God said, in the day you eat thereof, you're going to die. So in what sense did he die? He didn't die right away. He lived for several hundred more years. In what sense did he die? Well, what happened was he had the life of God available to him, and the moment he stopped depending on God and he decided to be independent of God, he was cut off from the life of God, and his death was just a matter of time. But physically, when you are cut off from the life of God, you're going to die. And, and if you are cut off today, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are not trusting him for your salvation, you are already dead spiritually, the Bible says. That is already your, your condition. That means every person without Jesus has no intimacy and no connection with God. And if you don't have that connection, if you are a branch that is not connected to the vine, to Jesus, then you are absolutely cut off from God. And because of that, you are useless to him. I didn't say worthless to him. I said useless to him. Because what is the, what is the master gardener? What is the farmer? What does the, the vineyard keeper want? He wants fruit. And you can't bear fruit if you've been cut off from the vine. In verse 5, Jesus made it very clear, you can do nothing. Ron Dunn, uh, evangelist, Bible teacher from years ago, I got to hear him, meet him years ago. He said the word nothing here in Hebrew, which is really funny because it's Greek. But he says the word nothing in Hebrew is a zero with the rim kicked off. How much can you do? Nothing. Nothing. Last night, uh, yesterday afternoon, I asked Gail, I said, Gail, I know what I want to use for a visual today. I want you to go get a long stem of anything and, and, and put it in a jar and, and bring it for me. So she goes to the store, and she brings back a dozen of these. <laughs> she said it was cheaper to do it that way. I think she has 11 roses and a very nice vase at home. Just, just saying. The moment this rose was cut off from the bush, it began to die. Now, it doesn't look bad right now. doesn't smell bad. But it's dying. And in a matter of days, depending on how I treat it, I've got it some water right now. In a matter of days, it'll lose its color. It'll droop. It'll dry out. It will die. Some of you are trying to live your life as a Christian like this. Cut off from the vine. And, and you can go for a little while that way. But spiritually, you're going to dry up. And you're going to be frustrated. And you're not going to make progress. And you're not going to do what you think the Bible says you ought to be able to do. And those of us that try to live that way, we're going to be the most miserable kind of Christian. 
And so what, what Jesus is describing is a way of living where we draw our life from him. He wants me to live in such a way in my union with him that everything I need, I am looking to him to provide. And so this, this rose becomes a real clear example. I remember we've lived through several ice storms over the course of our life. I remember really a bad one in the late 90s when we lived down in Louisiana. My wife and I, we, we had a house. We lived in the old garden district, Lake Charles, Louisiana. Had the, all these stately old trees and oaks and everything up and down the streets and the boulevards. Boy, when those dudes came down, that's several hundred pounds of tree coming down. And, and every one of those limbs died. They all died. They may have green on them for a little while, because in South Louisiana, nothing completely dies in the winter. So they may have some green on them for a little while, but they were, they were going to die. They were cut off from the life of the tree that was giving them life. You may think it's hard to live the Christian life. Dear one, it is impossible. There's only one person who's ever lived a Christian life, and that's Jesus Christ. He is still the only one who can live that life. And what Jesus is saying is, if you're going to follow me, you are like a branch, and the only way that branch is ever going to live, the only way that branch is ever going to accomplish anything, the ever, only way that branch is ever going to have significance is if it's rooted in the vine and it draws its life from the vine. There's an old saying I learned years ago. One of my fathers in the Lord used to say this. It wasn't original to him either. But here's what it was. I can't, but he never said I could. He can, and he always said he would. Let me say it again. I can't, but he never said I could. He can, and he always said he would. That's the difference he makes when he lives inside a human heart. The connection between the vine and the branch is a living one. It's not an idea, it's a reality. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, where? Into your hearts. That means the same Holy Spirit that animated Jesus, guided Jesus, spoke to Jesus, empowered Jesus, lives in you. The Spirit of Jesus Christ. And like the sap that flows up through the vine and gives life to the branches, so the Holy Spirit is in you to supply you with everything you need in this moment. Intimacy with God. Wisdom. Knowledge. Power. Every circumstance you face in life, He is prepared to meet that circumstance through you. Because He lives here. So a real disciple looks like a branch united to a vine, a branch that's drawing life from the vine. But Jesus is also teaching something else here about what a disciple looks like. Number three, a disciple looks like a branch bearing fruit by drawing life from the vine. It bears fruit. And we're going to go back in coming weeks, and we're going to look at this in depth. But in verse 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Look at that, guys, he says. Look at how that branch works. Here's the vine. Here's the branch. If it's not connected to the vine, there's never going to be fruit over here. He says, neither can you unless you abide in me. So in the picture that Jesus draws of a disciple, a disciple, very simply, is someone who bears fruit. 
Now, what is that fruit? Well, I don't think it's much of a stretch. I mean, I, I, have, I have read for years and asked that question. Every time I see a new book on the Gospel of John, I turn to John 15. What is the fruit? What does this scholar say the fruit is? Based on what I've just shared with you, let me give you, let me give you your pastor's response. The fruit is the manifested life of Jesus through you. That includes everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus is about. You see, what Jesus intended when he left physically and sent the Holy Spirit to live in you, you know what he expected? He expected that what you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was going to continue. That it was not over. That the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth was going to continue through his men, his women, indwelled by his Spirit. And so what we have in the book of Acts is kind of a test. When we read the book of Acts, does it look at all like the ministry of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? When we read Acts, when we see spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-led men and women, do we see something of the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ? Yes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But it's one fruit, and it's the character and the life of Jesus Christ being manifested through your heart, through you. And then when you and I do ministry, I'm not supposed to go and do it in my own strength. The calling is to come to Christ and say, Lord, lead me, guide me, speak through me, empower me, and then we go. Confident that we're doing what Jesus called us to do, what he's leading us to do, trusting him to meet whatever we encounter through our lives. Well, what is the key to this life? What is the key to not just being united with the vine as a branch, drawing life from the vine as a branch, but bearing fruit as a branch? What's the key? The word is abiding. Everything rises and falls on whether or not I'm abiding in Christ. As I said, we're going to take this further, but abiding is the heart activity of this new way of life. Let me tell you what I believe Jesus is saying to you and to me when he says, abide in me. Make your dwelling in me every moment. Every task. Every conversation. Make me your dwelling. Abandon every other approach to life that causes you to live without me. My life will flow through your life. I will give you everything you need in every moment that you are consciously choosing to rest in me. I will give you everything you need in every moment that you consciously choose to rest in me. And I will continue my ministry on earth through your life. Tomorrow, there's an eclipse of the moon. Did I just surprise anybody? <laughs> One of the favorite things I've seen about the eclipse little five-second video. It's called, a, it's called a spoiler alert. 
There's a picture of a moon pie somebody passed in front of the sun, you know, letting you know how it's going to happen tomorrow. I, I don't even know if we'll be able to see anything here, if the clouds are going to cover it up or what. But the whole idea behind the eclipse is that something passes in front of the sun. The moon passes in front of the sun, eclipses the sun. Dear one, the life of Jesus is already in you if you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior. He didn't save you and then tell you, now go do the best job you can to be a good Christian man or woman the rest of your life. Strain, make every effort to be good. The only difference is between you and the people of the Old Testament in that kind of scenario is that we understand that Jesus died for on the cross, but, but the life is the same. In the Old Testament, they were doing everything in their power to get it right. That was the old covenant. But you and I live under a new covenant. God says, you trust me, I will give you everything, everything you need to be in relationship with me. Jesus Christ said, eternal life is this, knowing God and his son whom he has sent, being in a relationship with God, that is eternal life. It's not something that happens when you die and go to heaven. It's something you get the very moment you trust Jesus Christ. You can know him. And so what is eclipsing the life of Christ in you? If you're hearing what Jesus is saying, how he's drawing a picture of what this life looks like, and you're looking at it and you're saying, wow, that's not my life. What's eclipsing the life of Jesus in you? Maybe it's just you didn't know. And that's a real possibility. Sometimes we just flat don't know how we were supposed to live the Christian life. I didn't know I was supposed to live the Christian life by resting in him to work in me and through me by his Holy Spirit to transform me, to change me. I didn't know that in the very beginning. I didn't know. So maybe you just didn't know, and that's what covered it up. Maybe, maybe it's because you like trying to be better. Maybe not necessarily better than anybody else, but you've got it in you that, you know, I feel better when I'm in charge. I feel better when I'm in control. I feel better when I'm trying to get it right. And yes, I mess up. Yes, I don't get there. Yes, I don't achieve. But I just feel better when I'm in control. And so maybe it's your desire to be in control that's eclipsing the life of Christ because you can't come to Christ unless you give it up, friend. You can't experience the life of the Lord Jesus Christ unless he is the Lord and you are the servant. And so as long as you want to be in charge, this life of the disciple that Jesus drew, that's not going to be your experience. There's a big word, we, we'll probably address it at some point in the series, but there's a big word, carnality. It shows up in 1 Corinthians 3. If I am living my life, doing what I want to do to please me, to take care of me, that carnal life, boy, that's going to eclipse the life of Jesus. In the church where that was happening, people were fighting, people were fussing, people were taking sides. And that just eclipses the life of Christ. Sometimes carnality takes a whole different form. Sometimes we've just been so hurt 
I've been so hurt. I've been so wounded by other people. I can't, I can't, I, I feel like I have no strength to forgive them. I have no strength to move past what they did to me. I have no ability to get that pain out of my soul. And so that pain and that hurt is eclipsing the life of Christ in you. And you need to understand you can't forgive without Jesus. You can't forgive the way he wants you to forgive without Jesus. And so Jesus wants to manifest his forgiveness through you. He wants to show others what that looks like through you. But as long as unforgiveness and that pain and that hurt eclipses the life of Christ, not going to happen. Everybody on this planet, everyone here, there is only one reason why you're alive right now on this planet. Only one. The answer is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It's a, it's a verse about God. And it says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the only reason we're still here. That's it, dear ones. You may thought you were here to go to school. You may thought you were here to uh, attain a certain level of income or a certain position of life or retirement or whatever you thought you were here for, and you thought, that's why I'm here. No, there's only one reason why anyone is here. It's because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The essence of repentance is turning from my life without God, which is sin, my independence, and repentance is turning from that and turning to God. And entering into a relationship with God by faith. Trusting Him to be everything I need. Everything. Reaching the conclusion that I can't live life on my own. I need God. Is that where you are this morning? Do you realize that your life is broken, that your life is a wreck because you are living independently of God and you're just trying to fix and control and maintain some semblance of life on your own without him? How's that going for you? I can't imagine a more miserable place to be. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. We're going to have pastors standing at the front. God is not willing that any should perish. It's the only reason we're here. He wants you, friend. He wants to save you. He wants to change your life. He wants to send his Holy Spirit into your heart. He wants to renew you. He wants it to begin in the context of relationship between you and him. And he wants to live his life through you. Will you come and surrender to Christ? Will you trust him to save you? Will you give him all that you are of yourself, all that you know of yourself? and receive him by faith. When we stand and sing, I want to invite you to come. And then brother or sister, how is your life in Christ? Are you still trying to do it all yourself? Are you still trying to make it all happen? Oh, you may come to church. You may be a teacher. You may be a deacon. You may be a staff member. You may be you know, from all outward appearances, you may be the one that has it all together, but you know on the inside that you're broken and you're disconnected. He did not create you to live independently of him. 
everything he wants to accomplish in your life, he's going to do through your connection to him. You are the branch, and he's the vine. 